Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me, as always, he is the man who played Bill Fantastimart in the Sarah Silverman program, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very good. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was... Uh a beautiful day. You know, we shot the Bill Fantastamart scene over in East Los Angeles, which I had never really been to before. And it's an incredibly lovely part of the city that got a bad name for itself, I guess, because there were so many kind of gangland attacks over there. But but historically, the, it's just absolutely gorgeous place. It was a gorgeous day. Oh, dear, David, that was a sweet memory, even though we did burn that that store down. <laughs> we we, we, we well, did that, too, yeah. The Sarah Silverman was, program, of course, a Comedy Central original series, and I believe it was recently canceled, which is really sad, because uh, it was a pretty awesome show. Yeah, so, hysterical show. Yeah. Well, you know, Stephen, ever since we started this podcast, uh, you've actually been tweeting up a storm on the social network, social <laughs> broadcasting service Twitter, and people can find you at twitter.com slash Tobolowski. And uh, this morning, you were tweeting about this article you had read at brainmysteries.com, and you tweeted, they have isolated a bacteria in the soil that is antidepressant and can aid learning. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about this? This this really fascinated me. Uh, you recall, I think, the a couple episodes ago, uh, I did the story of my broken neck called The Afflictions of Love. Uh, that was, what, episode 28? Yes. And in that episode, in terms of healing, I ended up, quite coincidentally, sitting outside on a bench watching a squirrel with enormous balls. Al-Qaeda squirrel tried to kill me. Uh <laughs> In this particular scientific article, it mentions that they have now isolated a bacterium in the soil, common soil, that one elevates mood, is anti-anxiety, and helps you learn. And they were trying to draw comparisons why people who garden uh, suddenly feel, you know, so I love gardening so much, why people like my mom uh, used, used to say she feels so close to God whenever she's in the yard, that maybe it was the mood elevation. And I was speculating that maybe one of the accidental reasons I got well was that I spent all that time in the garden. Uh, But I think I mentioned to you before, David, that one of the things I like to do on the set is read scientific articles. And, And the reason I like to read scientific articles is because they're short and they're kind of interesting and... Uh, For people who are just tuning into this podcast, I do want to bring up that today's story is a continuation from last week's story uh, when I ended up going off to Buffalo to to do the Miss Firecracker contest. But I, I want to begin by talking about this scientific article. There was an experiment that was recently conducted on the brains of people who have faith that is, who are religious, and those who do not have faith, but people who believe in science. And the amazing result is that the exact same area of the brain lights up when you ask a religious person about angels or heaven as if you ask a scientific person about Stephen Hawking and continental drift. The exact same region. 
And the gray areas for the two groups is also exactly the same, prayer and drugs. And it's understandable if you think about it. Both of these things, prayer and drugs, require a belief system for either of them to be effective. Now, in this article, they did a double-blind study in which they gave sugar pills to two groups of people. They told one group that some of them would be getting placebos, but some of them would be getting a new medicine for mood elevation. And they told the other group of people that some of them would be getting placebos, but some of them would be trying out an element of a drug that would be in a new cancer medicine, and they wanted to make sure the drug didn't cause nausea or headaches. At a rate of about 50-50, some people in the first group said they felt better than they had felt in a long time, and some people in the second group started throwing up. Both of these reactions were created by a belief system. Now, scientists scoffed on the efficacy of prayer and healing, but methinks people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. At this point in my life, when I was in Buffalo at that time, which was, I guess, the very early 80s, I was firmly in the drug camp. I had seen the ability of indica marijuana make me giggle nonstop at an Errol Flynn movie. I had firsthand knowledge that enough tequila ingested over a short enough period of time would make me drop on all fours and gallop like a horse down the hallways of a hotel in Dallas with a classmate on my back saying, go horsey, go. I had faith that that stuff works. So when a sad-eyed doctor in the emergency room in Buffalo told me that I probably had viral meningitis, I was ready to write a country song and pack it in. But when that same sad-eyed doctor told me I had to take a powerful sedative for several days, I was more willing to give life one more try. I needed a point man. I needed someone who I could trust to watch over me. And who else could I pick but ex-Marine, ex-drug addict, current wise man, heavy drinker, Bob Darnell. Bob was thrilled that I had decided to take the drug route on my way back to health. If it worked, it would mean I would be well enough to get drunk with him at Ray Flynn's bar down the street. And if it didn't, there would be a whole bottle of leftover pills for the weekend. So Bob tucked me into my bed, laid out the first three doses. And he said, it may take a while for this shit to kick in. It would work better if you injected it. I said, well, that, that's okay, Bob. That's okay. The pills will work fine. I don't like needles. And Bob said, I hear you, bro. I used to feel the same way. That's why it's important to learn to give a good shot. Just so you know, I can give a good shot. I, I, I said, thanks. Thanks. Um, I'll just pop that one into the memory bank. But for right now, let's move forward with plan A. Bob said, gotcha. So here are the first three doses. You want to take two every six hours. I got the key. I'm going to lock you in and check on you to make sure you're safe. You want some music on? I said, no, Bob. I think silence will be good. I have about three and a half days before we start rehearsal. So if I sleep for three straight days and spend half of a day drinking coffee to wake up, that should work. Bob said, sounds like a plan. Here go. Take two and lights out, soldier. I took my pills and lay back. Bob sat with me for a few minutes. 
I suddenly felt like I was on an escalator headed down to discounted menswear in the basement of consciousness. I heard Bob rise quietly, tiptoe out of the room. I heard the door shut and silence. Next thing I knew, the bedside light was on and Bob was sitting there holding two more pills. Here you go, bro. Time for more meds. I mumbled, how long have I been sleeping? Bob whispered, about eight hours. This should get you through the night. I'll be back in the morning. I took two pills and fell back on my pillow. I actually remember the dream I had that night when I was smashed on sedatives. I met my grandmother, Grandmother Tobolowsky, who died when I was a little boy. Now, my real memories of grandmother are very few. She had a bright face and a gigantic smile, and we would go over to grandfather's house after Sunday school, and grandmother would always fix me a bowl of chicken soup with lima beans (laughs) and for dessert, a plate full of Oreo cookies. The combination must have worked because I couldn't wait to get over there. I would run into the kitchen. I would give her a big hug. She would kiss me on top of the head and tell me, go over to the kitchen table, which I did dutifully. To this day, the smell of lima beans and cookies can get me to do just about anything. Grandmother died in October of 1959 when I was eight. I remember my father didn't cry. He just went into his bedroom and lay down. I remember the silence scared me more than tears ever had. In my dream that night, grandmother came to me and said, Hello, Stevie. I recognized her radiant smile, and I said, Hello, grandmother. I haven't seen you for a long time. I never think about you, but I have never forgotten you. She smiled and said, I haven't forgotten you either, Stevie. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you the secret of life. Even in my dream, I was afraid it was going to be like one of those movies where somebody knows who the killer really is, but they always die before they can spit it out. But that was not so. Grandmother told me, I still remember it, and now I will tell you the secret of life. Ready? Grandmother told me, Stevie, all life is falling up. I I said, "I, I, I don't understand, Grandmother. What? She explained, we all begin as a seed, tiny, near the earth, and then we fall up. We grow taller toward the sky. A tree starts as a seed and falls up towards the sky and has fruit. We have thoughts as children that are near the earth, and as we grow older, they fall towards the sky. We fall up. When we reach the top, we die. I felt Bob's hand on my shoulder gently waking me. Hey, bro, time to dose up. Here two more. I took two more pills, fell back into bed. I slept through the entire next day, That evening, I was awakened with the smell of chicken soup. It was not a dream. It was Bob. Hey, bro, wake up. I made you a little soup. It's not good to have that shit on an empty stomach. If you eat a little, you'll feel better. Bob fed me the the chicken soup and some slices of bread. 
He lay me back down on the pillow, turned out the light. I slept through night number two, and I vaguely remembered the dream from night number two. Here it is. I was standing by the ocean, on the beach. There was a volleyball net set up, and all of my friends were on the other side, and I stood alone. And I remember calling out to one of my friends to come over to my side of the net. And my friend Bruce called back to me that he was sorry. He couldn't hear me. The waves were too loud. I remember the dream because it was in color. And I actually heard the sound of the waves. And it made me feel so alone. It made me recall Prince Hamlet's lament that, I could be bound in a nutshell and count myself king of infinite space were it not that I had bad dreams. Then I heard a voice. For real. My eyes opened. It was no dream. But the voice was not Bob's. It was a man. No, two men talking in my apartment. Someone was in my living room. I was wide awake now, and I heard footsteps down the hallway walking away from my bedroom toward the kitchen. The refrigerator door opened and closed. More footsteps, more talking. I heard noise in the back bedroom. Someone had broken into my apartment. Maybe they didn't know that there was another bedroom at the other end of the hall. I had to get out. Now, to get to the front door, I would have to walk down the hall toward the living room. If they stayed in the back part of the apartment, I could run for it. I didn't have a choice. God knows what would happen if they came down and saw me in here. I lay in bed with my mind racing. I had a practical problem. I didn't have any clothes on. Now, Bob lived on the top floor, the room at the top of the building, the crow's nest, as he called it. And he was armed. Yes, Bob had a gun. I could get dressed and run upstairs, but that would take time. That would make noise. I could run out of the apartment undressed like I did many years ago in my apartment in Dallas when it was infested with fleas. But then if Bob wasn't home, I would be stuck in my building naked in Buffalo. I had to make a decision quickly. I heard more noise at the back of my apartment. I had to act now. That's when I ran into my second practical problem my arms and legs didn't work. I had taken so many sedatives, my extremities weren't functioning. I could lift my head off of the pillow, but that was it. Okay, plan B. Maybe I could generate enough momentum by swinging my head side to side. I could start to roll. Then I could roll off the bed and then roll under the bed for protection. I know it was not a good idea because of the noise factor. In the final analysis, it didn't matter because I couldn't generate enough G-force with my head to move anything. I couldn't even get out from under the covers. I heard the sounds in the house. They had given up on finding anything in the back bedroom. They were back in the living room conferring, and I heard low, urgent conversation. Then came the terror as they discovered the hallway that led down to my bedroom. I frantically tried to move again, but it was a no-go. I was a 200-pound sack of flour with a head. I saw only three options. One, they would kill me. Two, they would rape me. Three, they would rape me and then kill me. You know you're in a bad situation when your best option is just being murdered. 
the footsteps headed down the hallway toward my bedroom. So I thought, I thought, I thought, okay, plan C. I'm an actor. I could act. I could pretend I was asleep and they might see me and decide to sneak out. I never found out. I got plan D. It's one that you never usually count on. Divine intervention. The footsteps headed down the hallway. They neared my bedroom and a shot rang out. They stopped and ran. I heard them run through the apartment and out the back door. I was fully awake now. I didn't need the coffee intravenous drip I thought I would need to regain my alertness. I kept trying to move. I had no idea when the intruders would come back. After about an hour of focused effort, I started having feeling coming back into my arms and legs. I heard the key in the door, the front door open. It was Bob. Hey, bro, you're up. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm up. I'm up all the way. Somebody broke into the apartment. Bob said, no shit. Just now? I said, about an hour ago. Bob got that marine look in his eye and said, stay right here. And he wandered down the hallway calling out, come out, come out, wherever you are. Come out and get your ass kicked. He searched the apartment. Nothing. He came back and told me that they left in a hurry. The back door was open. So I told him I was cooked, and then I heard a bang, a gunshot, and they ran. Bob shook his head and says, there weren't no gunshot in here, Jack. No smell. It was something else. Bob helped me into the shower, and afterwards he made me breakfast. We sat and ate eggs and toast and drank a pot of hot black coffee. Bob asked me how I was feeling. I said it was hard to tell. I was still here, ready to start rehearsal. And then I asked Bob if he believed in dreams. Bob said, absolutely. I told him about the dream with my grandmother. Bob listened seriously and said, that one no dream, bro. When people you know and have loved and have passed come back to you in a dream, that's a visitation. I said, really? He said, yep. It's hard to know sometimes what dreams are trying to tell you. You try to figure them out, but you could be flat out wrong. But visitations are always true. I said, so what do you think she meant? That all life is falling up, and when you reach the top, you die. Bob took a sip of coffee and stared out the kitchen window. He smiled and shook his head and said, I don't know, bro, but I'm thinking about it. I live in the crow's nest. I was not aware of it at the time, but Buffalo holds a unique place in the world. And it's not just the jazz or the great Italian food. Buffalo is called the City of Illusions. Yeah, it's a famous magic town where magicians come from all over the world to build, display, and sell their magic tricks. 
just like Bangkok has a district dedicated to prostitutes and New Orleans has a district dedicated to jazz and maybe cockroaches, Buffalo has a few blocks that are filled with bars called Thurston's or Blackstone's, where odd-looking men stood at the bar shuffling a deck and calling out to passing strangers, Hey there, friend, pick a card, any card. The director of the Miss Firecracker contest was a one-time weatherman, full-time magician, Davy Marlin Jones. Davy was certainly the oddest of all oddballs. He wore a black cape and a huge black hat. He directed the play the same way he would perform an illusion. Davy had a lot of tricks up his sleeve. All of them came from the principles of magic. He taught me that the human eye could only look at one thing at a time. Once you knew this, it was easy to lead an audience down the garden path. A drink pouring into a glass. A glance to the right. A cigarette lit at the proper moment sets up a surprise entrance stage left. He taught me that the human eye is sensitive to rhythm. You can create a flow of focus by setting up a series of regular rhythms, then create a dramatic moment by slipping in a touch of syncopation. And Buffalo was all about jazz. Davy invited the cast down to the magic district where he was going to do a show. And he taught me this mind-reading trick where I put four objects on a table in front of my victim. I tell them I will write down on a piece of paper which of the four objects they will choose. And then through a series of manipulations, I make them choose the object I wrote down on the card. It was an element of magic called forcing the card. Of course, here there was no card, but the principle is the same. It's easy for a magician to tell you what card you picked if they pick the card ahead of time. The illusion is not the magician picked your card, but that you, the viewer, ever had a choice. As a cast, we ordered drinks. I decided I would try my mind magic out on Donna Davis, a beautiful actress who was playing my sister Elaine in Miss Firecracker. I wrote down the object that I told Donna she was going to choose, and I folded it up mysteriously and put it under the salt shaker on the table so it could not be touched. I told her to think of one of four objects I placed in front of her, a fork, a pepper shaker, a bottle of ketchup, and a glass of water. Donna concentrated deeply, and I was about to begin this long-winded story about the occult and Osiris and the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the power of the mind, and my hand happened to accidentally come down on the pepper shaker, and before I had a chance to say a word, Donna yelled, oh my God, that's it, that's it, the pepper shaker. I smiled and did a sort of bow, taking credit where none is due, and Donna bounced up and down at her seat and said, let's do it again, let's do it again. I started to sweat. Okay, I lucked out the first time by having completed a trick before I even began it. The second attempt would certainly show me to be a fraud. What the heck? In for a penny, in for a pound. So I wrote the name of another object on a napkin, placed the napkin under the salt shaker, and I was about to begin the trick and the talk about Osiris and the Egyptian Book of the Dead when Donna said, wait, let's do this differently. Stephen, I don't trust you. Don't touch anything. Look into my eyes and tell me what object I picked. I was so screwed. I knew it. But we had come this far, so I looked into Donna's eyes. 
I silently pulled the napkin out from under the salt shaker and opened it up in front of her. It read, Fork. Her face turned red. Her eyes filled with wonder. She silently and almost reverentially nodded. Yes. She whispered, Yes. How did you know? I looked at Donna and whispered, Magic. Davy got on stage and mystified and delighted the audience with a literally fantastic show where he wrote down a menu from a restaurant on a chalkboard. Then he covered the chalkboard with a wooden panel, pulled out an electric drill, and screwed the wooden panel on. Then he picked a tourist at random from the audience. She was from Cleveland. He gave her a pile of quarters and told her to make a long-distance phone call to her mother and asked what her mother had for dinner. Davy then unscrewed the panel and revealed his chalkboard that had every item of what the mother in Cleveland had for dinner written on it. And we all clapped wildly. Davy came back to our table and I asked him, how did you do the trick? He drank his scotch and winked at me and said, magic. Rehearsals had begun on Miss Firecracker. Davy was a great technical director. I was always amazed at the way he could stage a scene and create an effortless flow of focus. I was taking mental notes, which went into one of those filing cabinets in my brain labeled the Ten Commandments of Art. If you're going to steal, steal good. Davy told me that there were different ways to create close-ups on stage. One way was to start to sip a drink, and right before the glass touches your lips, stop and then speak. He said, no matter how large the theater, the audience will always focus on the actor's face. Another technique was to have an actor say his line while descending a staircase, and then at a crucial point, stop in between steps, and the line will draw the undivided attention from the audience. Health-wise, I was feeling much better from my three solid days of sleep, I had increasing energy, the headaches, and the bruising seemed to stop. But one of the unexpected consequences of my drug-induced coma was that I developed a near-fatal case of constipation. If not terminal, certainly stage three. Constipation is never a good topic of conversation, even when it's related to Elvis. And Elvis has the ability to make any conversation palatable. I think I would rather tell my wife I had an affair and spend time in prison than discuss constipation. I couldn't even mention it to Bob. We were in the middle of running through Act 1 when I realized something shifted internally and I needed a break. Soon. Very soon. In the middle of a crucial scene, to the amazement of my fellow actors, I raised my hand, stopped the action, and said, I needed to take a pill. The one good thing about working in a country that has an established drug culture is the respect everybody seems to have for your need to take a pill. Davy took off his huge hat, scratched his head, and said, well, I guess let's take ten. I ran out of that rehearsal hall. I ran down the stairs, out the building, down the street, down the four blocks to my apartment building, up the two flights of stairs to my bathroom. Men are very partial to their own bathrooms. I think it goes back to cave days when they picked out a good spot on top of the hill where they could see approaching saber-toothed tigers. I made it in time, which is good news, 
And as I was sitting there minding my own business, the small bathroom window on my wall to the right started to slowly rise as if by magic. I reached over from the toilet and gently lowered it. A second later, it started to rise again. Again, I reached up, I closed it. The third time it rose, and a gloved hand reached into the bathroom to hold it up. I heard muffled voices on the landing outside my window. Oh, my God! I recognized the voices. It was the two men I heard in my apartment when I was drugged and couldn't get out of bed. It was the same two voices I heard in my living room and hallway that ran out when that mysterious gunshot scared them. They were making a return appearance, now trying to break into my bathroom. I was completely occupied with my pursuits, with my pants at my ankles, and I could go absolutely nowhere. So I reached up from the toilet. I pushed the man's hands back outside the window, closed it again. Undeterred, he tried again. I had enough of this, and I rose as far as I could from the toilet seat. And out the window, I saw two black men in stocking caps on my landing. And I said, hey, guys, listen, I'm trying to take a shit here. The men stared at me with open mouths. I continued, I can't go anywhere right now. And I'm going to be here for, say, another seven, eight minutes max. Then I have to go back to rehearsal. If you want to rob me, come back later. I'll be gone all afternoon. The two men stared at me and then ran from the landing and down the fire escape. Curiously, over the next two months, almost every apartment in our building was broken into and robbed, except for mine and Bob's in the crow's nest. The men never came back. I guess it was a case of familiarity breeding contempt. Beth came out from New York to watch rehearsals. She could give Davy notes and make any script changes before opening night. It was clear we were going to have a solid production. It wasn't going to be a brilliant production, but sometimes that's a good thing. In the movie Seven Samurai, there's a, there's a great scene when the head warrior protecting the peasants pronounces the key to his strategy is to have an apparent weakness. He says that every good fort needs a weakness. And the same thing is true with the regional production of one of Beth's plays. People could come up from New York and they could see the strong bones that were there. The obvious weaknesses were actually comforting in that they all seemed very fixable with a different set or different costumes or a different actor. It was clear that the play worked. And that is always the key. The law of physics, when applied to theater, dictates that you can never make a bad play good. But, unfortunately, you can always make a good play bad. The Buffalo production clearly demonstrated that Miss Firecracker was a good play, so we were at least halfway there. We all had the jitters opening night. We heard Broadway and film director Ulu Grossbard had flown up from New York to see the show. Suddenly, all of us actors in the boonies of Buffalo felt like we were on the big stage and we had the attention of the theater world. The play started with a bit too much nervous energy. It was moving quickly, but it soon settled into a good pace. The audience caught up with it, and the laughter started. The Beth magic started to work. By intermission, we knew the show was going well, and then Act Two started. Bob 
made his first entrance as the lights came up, and the audience broke into applause. I was standing backstage. I had to laugh. Two years ago in St. Louis, when we did Crimes of the Heart, the audience always applauded when Bob entered. Wherever Bob was, he was an audience favorite. Davy Marlin Jones told me one night over a bottle of scotch that wherever he goes to direct, he always tries to find a part for Bob. He said Bob had the power to save any show. I asked Davy, why? Davy shrugged and sipped his scotch and giggled and said, well, there is only one Darnell. I said, I know. I've ridden in a car with him. God broke the mold after he finished the last tattoo. Davy shook his head and looked into space and took another sip of Johnny Walker Black and said, The truth is, Bob is heroic. There's very little of that left nowadays. People always respond to a hero. I watch Bob from the wings. He sauntered across the stage and got laughs, doing practically nothing. Everything he did was effortless. It was an ease that can't be taught. Or maybe it can but you don't want to learn. When Bob was 16, he lied about his age and joined the Marines. He was sent to Korea and was in a foxhole when the Chinese launched their first human wave attacks. One million men with guns, hatchets, knives, or nothing, running and screaming straight into the teeth of the American forces. He survived that battle only to be blown up while he was taking a leak on the side of the road. He thought he lost his legs. It was his ticket out of the war. He learned to walk again. He spent time working construction. He spent time in prison. By the time he was 40, he counted that he had had sex with over 1,700 women. He told me one night in a theater bar that he had lived his life as an emotional buccaneer and he would have given anything to have been true to one woman. I realized watching him that with every step he took on stage, he carried with him something he had survived. The laughter and the applause Bob always got seemed to be an appreciation that he fought a battle that we would never have to fight. The play ended. We got a huge ovation. Success. Beth was thrilled. She was jumping up and down. She ran up to congratulate us. It was a job well done. The theater held an opening night party on stage. Bob and I went upstairs to get ready for the party. We were hugging each other. We did it! He gave me another huge open mouth kiss. I started taking off my makeup, and Bob took out a single Kleenex from his makeup kit, wiped his face with it, tossed it away, and headed out the door. I looked in the mirror and said, Whoa, Bob, that's it? Bob looked at me and said, Bro, you ain't an actor if you have to take your makeup off with more than one Kleenex. We headed down to the party. I was famished. I picked up a plate and I headed down the double-sided buffet line. Ulu Grossbard came up to me and congratulated me. He said he loved my performance and was also particularly taken by the man with all the tattoos. Ulu said we had a great chemistry and the play worked like magic. I was on cloud nine, oblivious to everything around me. I got to the end of the buffet line and was putting a roll on my plate, and I looked up to a woman who was on the opposite side of the hot bread. She was staring at me. I froze. It was Faye Dunaway. She was so beautiful, 
I lost the power of motion. I just looked into her absolutely deep, dark eyes, and she leaned in and whispered across the buffet table, How long do we have to stay here? Pause. Insert a news story of people dying of spontaneous combustion. I had officially turned into a lawn ornament holding a roll. I said, Excuse me? Faye smiled and said, I think we should leave. I said, I think you're right. <laughs> we should go. Uh, let me just tell my girlfriend. She's right over there. Faye smiled and nodded. I walked over to Beth and said, Sweetie, Faye Dunaway is over there and she just asked me to leave with her, so I think I'm going to go. Beth looked over at Faye, who smiled and waved. Beth said, Yikes. Well, I guess if Faye wants you to go, you have to go. Well, I'm going to stay and talk to Ulu. Call the theater if you go anywhere fun. Okie dokie, I said. I turned and made my way back through the crowd, back to Faye. She took me by the arm and we left the theater and we wandered out into the night. We were off. By moonlight, by starlight. We had set out to explore the mysteries of the City of Illusions. That was The City of Illusions, a series of stories by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, it sounds like you violated the one cardinal rule of doing magic tricks. Never do the same trick on the same person more than once. <laughs> I guess, you know, that is, that is true, but uh, real magicians can do the same trick twice. <laughs> I just I just lucked out, David. I lucked out. I don't know. That's uh, I've always been taught that that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Because otherwise, but I have to I have to fess up. I never told Donna that it wasn't magic. I'd I, seen her several times I, over the years after that. I always and she never it was that. she never figured it out. <laughs> never figured out that it was just dumb luck. <laughs> Well, Stephen, uh, how can people reach you if they want to email you their own stories or just respond to yours? I think the best way is at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com or at twitter.com slash Tobolowski or at facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski. And uh, at this point in time, it's still actually before June 5th when we were supposed to have our meetup. But by the time this episode's coming out, it will be after we've had our meetup. Uh, and it was in, great, David. Let it, me tell you. I was going to say, I was going to say, <laughs> hopefully, A, it happened. And if it happened, thank you guys for coming out. <laughs> and, uh, and it was obviously awesome, right? It was hopefully. completely awesome. In fact, I think... Uh, David and I, we talked about recreating a scene from Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. Well, I will cook sausages for David Chen at my house. All right. Well, that's, that's, that is not a metaphor, people. So, uh, so hopefully that works out. That, that worked out, I should say. And if you guys came out for the meetup, wherever it happened... 
thank you guys for coming out. And it was great to meet you all. Uh, I, again, I have no idea if, if this will actually happen, but hopefully it does. If you'd like to reach me, you can email me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash davechensky. That's davechensky at slashfilm.com and at slashfilmcast.com. I also have a personal website at davechen.net. And that is going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowski Files. Thank you guys for listening, and have a great week. Adios. Yes.